episode 58, Tom Peters, author of Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. I had to work my ass off, but I managed to get fired from McKinsey. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is a place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and a chance to win a copy of Tom's latest book, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake58. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And now on with the show. Well, hi, welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Uh, it's early in the morning here in LA. I've got a cup of coffee, but I am joined, thankfully, by someone I think is a real energy booster. He is the one, the only, uh, Tom Peters. Um, so before I introduce Tom a little bit more, Tom, thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm going to have problems with your basic thesis because I've made so many mistakes that ranking them all is going to... Yeah, I, pre- I presume we've got a minimum of an hour and a half, right? <laughs> we can make this a series, maybe. <laughs> yeah, make it a series, absolutely. Um, so Tom is known for, for many things. Oh, for one, I, I find Tom's books uh, really energizing, his his tweets and, and videos. I, I really do mean that. And Tom is known for many things. He's the author of 18. Is this still right? 18 or is the new one 19? No, the new one's 19, number 19. The new one, my most recent mistake. Um, but yeah, right. 19 books, including going back to 1982, In Search of Excellence, um, Thriving on Chaos, 1987. And then many books later, the latest is called Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. So I'm excited uh, to talk about that, Tom. But you know, looking back at you know a very interesting career, I mean, uh, give it your best shot, I guess, in terms of rankings. Do you have a favorite mistake that you can tell us about? Oh, absolutely. I had to work my ass off, but I managed to get fired from McKinsey. Now, McKinsey today is in the midst of its scumbag period, but we will avoid that or we can talk about it if we want to. Uh, but fun- fundamentally, I was working on the research for In Search of Excellence. Um, and, you know, that the backstory of that is, you know, would, would take us forever. And I got totally caught up in what I was doing. And I forgot all the rules. Some people say subconsciously, I was doing it on purpose. For example, in 1977, at a place like McKinsey, you did not wear hair that came down to your shoulders. You did not sign up to teach a course at the Stanford Business School and not bother to tell McKinsey that you were going to do it. So I I wasn't thinking of sticking it in their ear, but I was sticking it in their ear. And they finally came through and should have come through and tossed me out. Uh, I don't ever like to talk about money 
but I will just this one time. In Search of Excellence was not supposed to sell. The first print run was 3,000. Uh, and they thought that was generous and wild. And so when I got fired from McKinsey, I had to sign an agreement on royalties. And I ended up, percentage-wise, as I should, with 50% of the royalties. And I think I paid 25000 bucks for that. And, you know, God knows what came in, but it wasn't 25000 bucks. Uh, but I was so, it's the story of my life in a way. I was so totally wrapped up in the project that I just, excuse the language, didn't really give a shit. I didn't care that McKinsey said this and McKinsey said that. And I knew that I was treading on water. I mean, I will say that my co-author, Bob Waterman, once said to somebody, my major contribution to the book was spending 70% of my time keeping Tom out of trouble. And, uh, you know, there's probably that number is a little high, but I'm not sure it's very high. Uh, and would I do anything differently in that regard? I don't know. I was, I had, I had, I would say, and this is probably true. I don't know what kinds of answers you get in general. If you're totally passionately engaged in something, logic goes out the window. And probably seven out of eight times it goes bust. But on the eighth time, if you're lucky, and we had perfect timing with In Search of Excellence, you know, you knock it out of the ballpark, knock it out of Dodger Stadium, as they say in uh, California. So, so you did have long hair, like you were, you were, you were in the CBs, you had worked in the Nixon White House. Like I have trouble picturing you with long hair. Uh, I think it was just, I mean, you said it right. You could not find a more establishment career. Grow up next to the Naval Academy. So you had that sniff around you. Uh, go to Cornell to be an engineer, go to the Navy for four years, including a couple of years in Vietnam, come out of the Navy and just go to the Stanford Business School. And from there you go to McKinsey. I mean, God almighty, what could be? I mean, I, my oldest son, I'm not going to go through what he does, but I adore him in general, but I totally adore him because he does, his career doesn't look like mine. He didn't do that. Check every frigging box sort of thing. And so I think it just, I don't know, Mark, it, it, it must have been explosive. I, I think I was, and I don't remember having thought, I, I've had enough and I want to get out of here. I mean, that's, it was awful when I was, was fired, um, you know, to my, to my psyche. But I was doing what I was doing and my damned head was down. And I don't like to say I wasn't paying attention, but I kind of wasn't paying attention. And I have no effing idea why the hell I grew the hair long. Unless it was, again, excuse the language, to flip the bird at McKinsey. And uh, I never, I'd love to talk to a shrink about it sometime. <laughs> it, it would be, but it, was, it wasn't a sort of thing. It was boom. I absolutely blew myself up. And and so at the time, it sounds like it caught you by surprise. Looking back at it in hindsight, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, it made sense why they fired you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, holy moly, I was a high-performing person in McKinsey. I was getting all sorts of stuff. I had this Stanford course that I was teaching. For God's sake, teaching at Stanford is no small thing. And I was doing research that I really loved doing. 
And I knew I was pushing the limits, but I sure as hell never thought they would pull the trigger. And so it did come out of the light blue, if not out of the out of the dark blue. And uh, yeah, and the, and there's no there's no way to unravel the story easily. The book was a wild success, and in my opinion, at least, uh, wild successes. Our book was a pretty darn decent book, and then God put his hand down on Bob and my head and gave us the most perfect timing in the history of the world. I mean, literally, we uh, the, the week the book was published, President Reagan announced 10% unemployment. And we hadn't had that number since the Great Depression. And we were getting the tar beaten out of us by the Japanese. As I said, it was really pretty simple. Their scars worked and, and ours didn't. And so the Americans who had come out of World War II as the planetary gods were getting the heck beaten out of them. And particularly with that you know, timing of the 10% unemployment, and as, as I said to somebody, all, all around the country, the business books moved from the back of the bookstore to the front of the bookstore. And it was perfect, perfect, perfect timing. But we can come back to that because it's just a good life lesson. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I mean, I'd like to hear that. Your, your story here makes me think of, like, there are guests who have stories where their mistake leads to better things, which is what makes it a favorite. Um, I'm, I'm curious if that is, if, if, what, what, what is the life lesson, though, that you took away from this? Because the one thing I hear is, oh, sometimes good things follow a setback. Well, I'm going to give you a very lousy answer, but you can figure out whether I'm giving you a lousy answer or not. I would bet statistically, when you get totally engrossed in something and follow your passion, Statistically, you're not going to end up with a number one bestseller in the world. But my lesson, and I'm not sure where it came from, was if you fall in love with something, then, you know, give it your all. And I didn't care whether the damn book sold or not. I was I couldn't have believed that anybody had given us a book contract. And, uh, you know, I was giving speeches on the material and people were interested in it. Uh, but I just fell more and more deeply in love with the subject matter and, you know, let, let everything else be damned. And I, I just don't know how to answer your question because I'd love to give you the easy answer. Follow your passions. But who, I mean, but that's not quite right. I followed my passions and then got lucky. And there are a lot of people who follow their passions that are completely moral and completely legal and they don't get lucky uh, you know i mean this, this is really important and i think we can tie it in to your subject matter to me it's incredibly important uh i've said there are three thousand three kinds of people i despise in this world mass murderers are number one child and spouse abusers are number two and number three is successful people who believe they deserve their success <laughs> That can be a mistake. I was in I was in London and, and this guy was driving me around town and I don't know what we were chatting about, uh, but it was, you know, a, a Lincoln Continental. So I was in the back seat or whatever the British equivalent of Lincoln Continental is. And he said to me, he said, you know, there are two kinds of people who ride in the back seat of this car. And I said, OK, I'm all ears. 
He said, there are people who remember their roots and people who think they deserve to be there. And I really do get furious when, when somebody believes that they had a, I mean, there's so many random things that happen to you in life. I mean, I was, you know, thinking about it the other day. Uh, I have a, have a new car, a Subaru Outback, but it has a huge center console and I'm still learning it. And so I'm never looking at the damn road. You know, I'm always looking at the console. And if I, and I know I should, and I'm old and my reactions are not as good as they were. I can't imagine what it would be to seriously wound or kill someone. And, you know, at some level, every damn trip I take is a, is a lucky break when I come back with having, you know, I know the deal, slow down, pay attention and so on, but here's a screen and it keeps yelling at me. Uh, you know, but, it, but at any rate, luck, 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 luck. I won't go anywhere beyond that topic. And I agree with the guy who was driving me around. If you say you deserved your luck and you, you didn't, uh, Luck. I mean, think it, you know, we're talking about racial equality and so on right now, as we should be. Do you really think I would be here and have had this success had I not born in nine been born in 1942, white, male, American, smart parents from the best country in the world to be from? I mean, you know, it's at some level, I mean, that was the all important first 99 and a half percent. And the, the rest was details. And there is a, I really got, you know, pissed off. I think it was, you know, after the George Floyd thing or something when people said, what, what's this white privilege stuff you talk about? I don't have any white privilege. Well, I sure as hell do. Uh, there is absolutely positively, you know, no, no question about that whatsoever. Yeah, I think it's a mistake to deny that or discount that. And, uh, you know, to, to, you know, people say, well, you know, I had to work hard. Well, you know, privilege doesn't mean things are easy, but this idea of white privilege means, to your point, certain things are handed to, certain things are easier. Yeah, much easier. I mean, you get, you get born in 2021 to incredibly wealthy parents and, uh, they are, buying the football coach a house so that they can get him into Southern Cal or Stanford or wherever else it happens to be. It's, and that's, you know, that, that wasn't your doing, dude. Right. Right. So it sounds like kind of key point mistake is thinking that success is completely the output of your own effort or talent and, and not also based on factors that you were you right. know, that, that, that weren't your choice you, yeah well I may and what I you know there's it also says I think and this is really not the way my mother brought me up it sort of says enjoy your life enjoy every day there is not a straight road trajectory from where you are to where you want to get to there will be setbacks on top of setbacks there will be lucky breaks. And uh, I think it's important, really important to know you can't control everything, you know, because I, among other things, well, I just think it's incredibly important. Well, and there are a lot of things, as you write about in your most recent book that you think are are really important. And, um, you know, I'd like to explore that a little bit. But, you know, first off, looking at the title, 
extreme humanism. I mean, how do you define humanism and, and what is in a good way, an extreme version of that? What are some of those traits or characteristics and leaders? I've written 19 books. I've been doing whatever I'm doing for 43 years. And it started out with the damned in search of excellence research. And fundamentally, I mean, I would love to have somebody buy all 19 books because I get 19 royalties. Uh, but the reality is it's one book repeated 18 subsequent times. And the big message was people first, people first, people first, uh, people, not spreadsheets. And, uh, and, and then God, I'd hate to use the word luck with this. I called it in the book serendipity. The messages that I've been talking about for 43 years took on 10 times their urgency last March when the pandemic began. And people first and decent behavior toward all of your colleagues. Uh, you know, I said about that, and I'm digressing here a, a little. Well, I, I don't want to digress. I'll digress, I'll digress in a minute. Uh, people first was the heart of it. Execution is a hundred times more important than strategy. Any idiot with an above freezing IQ can write a gorgeous strategy document. There was this wonderful quote that I used that came from uh, the General Bradley, the eventually five star who commanded all the American troops in D Day. Uh, and, and he said, Amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. And it is those boring, dull details, which also then plays right again into the into the people first thing, because I'll come to your damned hotel because it's gorgeous and it has a great location. I come back because the housekeeping department is great and it is spotless to the point that it glistens. That's the repeat business thing. And that's when I put my finger on my mouse or whatever and start recommending you uh, to, to other people. Execution, people, uh, design is huge to me. And it's huge in two dimensions. Design to me, Johnny Ive, the formal, former Apple chief designer, said, this may sound arrogant but we hope to do things that contribute to humanity just a little bit. And I think that can apply to any enterprise of any size. I did this little riff in the book, which said no such thing as a commodity. And it was 10 or 12 or 15 attributes of a plumber who's not a commodity. And it's everything from a clean truck to a clean uniform to politeness to showing up on time uh, to explaining to Mark what went wrong that made this thing happen so it might not happen again. And there are a hundred things. And it's absolutely no different than owning a 300-room uh, hotel uh, fundamentally. And they differentiate you and they differentiate you radically. So when you talk about, you know, you have those interactions with people, people design, those are, those are trying to think what I would put, you know, on my, on my top three relative to your show. Uh, now you are more sophisticated than I am, but 
I have yeah, I my know, entire but... <laughs> definition of innovation is W T T M S W. Whoever tries the most stuff wins. And then to really put it into your, and I'm not sure I can do this. W. Anyway, the advanced version of that is whoever tries the most stuff and screws the most stuff up the fastest wins. And I mean, that is, that is innovation. I mean, it was really fascinating when, when Steve Jobs died in many, many of the obits, uh, it said Steve Jobs was not an inventor. He didn't invent the damned iPhone. BlackBerry was there and other things. He was, and this is a perfect word, he was a tinkerer. He took something and he changed it and he changed it and he changed it. And in the end, it wasn't even recognizable, but it wasn't by you know sitting on a mountaintop and having an epiphany, which isn't fair because he sat in Japanese tea gardens to understand the simplicity that is the basis of the Apple success. But that's a but that's a that's another story. So what I hear you saying is, you know, if we're trying things, some of those things won't work out. No, most the best com- most of them won't work out. But let's learn from it. Percent, Mark. That's what Satiro Honda said. Mm-hmm. The Honda founder. He said, "Success is that one percent that emerges from the ninety-nine percent that's failure." Can't argue with him. Yeah. So one thing I I see in your work, we, we, we talk about the importance of learning from mistakes. You talk about. A minute ago, you called it decent behavior. In, in this book, you talk about hiring people who are nice. And I've worked in workplaces where managers would yell and scream and blame when a mistake was made. And like, well, people don't mean to make mistakes. And, and I would argue being nice doesn't give people permission to screw up. I would say being kind, being constructive, make sure people don't hide and cover up mistakes. Yeah, that's better for the business. What do you what do you say? I totally agree. I mean, that I was trained in the behavioral sciences in part and God in the behavioral sciences is is B.F. Skinner. And Skinner said. Negative feedback does not cause people to get better. It causes them to leave the playing field and not try again. In that regard, and God, if there's a you know one of the top three messages I'd love to leave indelibly in everybody's head, the research says there ought to be 30 positives for every negative. And, and again, as, as you said about the nice thing, it doesn't make you a chump. Uh, you know, somebody had this little riff that I came across a couple of years ago, and it was new to me. They said the magic words are yes and rather than yes, but. It's great job, Mark. But you could have done more in chapter two, as opposed to great job, Mark. And, you know, I think we can really talk about some ways to make this better. And that might sound like semantics, but it's semantics like a 45 pistol being pointed at your head. It's huge. And, and, and you're right, people. I mean, you know, the, the, there's a critical point here for our friends who are in sizable businesses. And by sizable, I don't, I don't mean giants. I mean let's say 50 or more. Uh, and that is the most important living human beings in the organization are your first line supervisors. They are responsible for everything. And business leaders wouldn't disagree with me, but they don't spend the time they should on figuring out who to promote. And they are total suckers 
for promoting the person who has the biggest sales numbers or the most technical skills and all of leadership. Leadership is 100.00000% people. You got a tech problem, hire somebody you can deal with tech problems. Your job as a leader is the people, not the people half, but the people 99.5% part of it. Yeah. And so when you talk about leaders, one thing that you're very vocal about um, on, on Twitter is the mistake companies make. And, and there, there's research to back this up that, that it's a mistake to not have 50% women in executive roles, leadership roles. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, if you read the section in the new book, I, I, and I'm not trying to urge reading the book, I'm making a different statement. Everything, every time I open my mouth, meaning my keyboard, Look, I'm trained as an academic. I have a bloody PhD from Stanford. I don't open my mouth without data behind it. And I was trained, my thesis advisor was the biggest son of a bitch that you've ever met in your life. You know, I said to somebody, if you want to understand Gene Webb, if you wrote in your thesis, you the sun rose, you would have to cite Newton, for God's sake. So, you know, these are not off the top of my head. So now I'm going to say, here's what the research says. And two key words for those who might get bent out of shape, on average, on average, on average, women are better leaders. On average, women are better salespeople. On average, women are better negotiators. On average, women are better investors. And if that's not enough for you, then you have the other half of the coin is that women buy everything. She is your customer. She buys 80% of all the consumer goods. And in the United States now, over 50% of professional purchasing agents are women. So she is as likely to sign the RFP for the five-year, $5 billion IS project as she is to pick the location of the family vacation. Uh, and as I said, on average, there are crappy women managers and there are fabulous male managers, but on average and relative to the things I talk about, it's it's along the lines because, you know, again, you said be so clear to say there are many exceptions. Women tend to be more empathetic. Um, and that's right out of Darwin, for God's sakes. You and I made our money in those days by getting up early, sharpening our spear and running around throwing spears at animals. I mean, there's this wonderful thing, which is so cool. I read this wonderful book called Compassionomics. Darwin never, ever, ever said survival of the fittest. That was some other guy. Spencer was his name. Dar uh, Darwin said survival of the best community. It was the opposite. If you have a great community, you raise more children. If you raise more children, you have a bigger community that can develop itself. If you have a greater community, you grow more food coming out of the ground instead of just depending on the spear chuckers. And so it's it's just, I mean, it's this is a wonderful book, by the way. Everybody has to buy, I'd like you to buy my book, but I'm forcing you to buy Compassionomics. Um, and there's one story I'm gonna tell out of that, out of that, but let's keep going. Well, I was just gonna say real quick, it sounds like so you've pointed out a mistake, people misunderstand or misportray Darwin in this, in, it often gets 
portrayed as you know this individualistic idea. What you're saying is that it's more along the lines of the phrase that um, some people mock. You know, this phrase it takes a village, but it sounds like boy, that really is the case. That is exactly the case. You know, for for every for everything known to humankind. Yeah, I mean the you know the the Darwin. I mean, which also goes back to an earlier comment on the women's thing. Men compete because we compete. The, the, here's the investment story and why women are better investors. There's a whole book, by the way. Uh, buy this next book, too. You don't have to read it. The t- it's worth it for the title. And the book title, written by a senior person at The Motley Fool, is Warren Buffett Invests Like a Girl and Why You Should, Too. And here's, here's the problem. Uh, you and I are sitting at trading. Uh, we'll go back to F2F world. You and I are sitting at trading desks and we know each other. Uh, and you have a day, probably mainly luck, that is absolutely fabulous. And now it's an hour before the market closes. Mark is not going to beat my ass on Tuesday. And excuse the language again. So I buy all sorts of risky crap in the last half hour with the sole purpose of beating Mark. And I mean, it's just, it's insane, but that's the way we boys operate. And it's a loser's strategy. Uh, You know, the people who are screaming that you were talking about, about, you know, are more, much more likely uh, to be male than female. Uh, And it's just, it's just, it's, it's just, it's stunning. So one other question I want to ask you before um, we have to wrap up here. I'm an introvert. So this is, there's a little bit of selfish motivation in this question. You advocate for introverts. You say it's a mistake to think that noisy people are the best leaders, the best at sales, the most creative. Why is that? Uh, because I steal shamelessly with attribution from a book called Quiet the author of whom is a woman by the name of Susan Kane. And again, it is a book. Susan was trained as a lawyer. There's no BS in this book. Uh, this is, again, all hard-nosed research. Uh, and introverts, I mean, I, it, it was su- such an incredible book. I was, you know, here I was 70 when the thing came out. And I thought, God almighty. You've implicitly been on the side of noisy people for the last 50 years. And Susan shows that that's always the deal. The noisy guy gets the promotion and the quiet guy is the best leader because he actually listens to people. And when they do all this group research where you put 10 introverts and 10 extroverts and they work on some problem, the extroverts come up with 25 solutions, all of which are random bullshit. The introverts come up with three solutions, but they've really been thought out. And in baseball terms, the odds of getting at least a ground rule double are a lot higher for the introverts. Uh, And it's just, as I said, I I really felt I've been running around the world and I had been diminishing and dismissing the incredible importance of finding, promoting the quiet people. And it's just, and she shows a million times, the instinct is if somebody talks, that means, oh, she goes through all this stuff. If you talk a lot, 
you are more intelligent, you are more physically attractive, all of these things that are associated with noise. And incidentally, which may surprise some people who are watching us, is in Susan's book, there's a really good introvert extrovert test. And I bet I scored as high as you did on the introvert scale. Um, and which doesn't mean I can't give a good speech. But I mean, the classic example, my wife and I, in the days of F2F, uh, have a Christmas party or something like that. There are 30 people there. It's an hour long party. I always talk to the same person for an hour. And you're ready to go home first, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's a classic example. You know, I I dig into you and we have this incredible conversation about what's going on in the world. The extrovert flits and flits and flits and Susan always grabs me and she said, this is our party, Tom. You need to talk, you know, talk to someone. I We went to a summer party a couple of years ago. About a month later, I, I ran into the woman who's home. It was one of those, you know, things to do on a July 4th afternoon or something. And I said to her, I said, Kate, I am so embarrassed. I said, we came to your party. I loved your party. And I never came and said to you, thank you for inviting us to the party. I ran into Dick Smith right after I came in and we talked for the next hour and a half. Yeah. And, and that's what introverts tend to do. Yeah. So, well, I, I was not expecting to hear about Tom Peters' party mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there is there is that. Um, well, the other the other thing relative to the the uh, I guess I'd call it the deeper phenomenon. There are personal mistakes that I've made that I have no intention of sharing with you, and that fifty or sixty years later, I am deeply ashamed of and ashamed of myself. And I think almost all all of us, you know, have a have a few of those in our background. So, you know, if you've got a couple of those, don't think it makes you an idiot, it makes you normal. Uh, but every, you know, I, a lot of people want me to write a memoir and I said, I can't because the value of a memoir is honesty. And there are half dozen things that probably have influenced my life that I would no more put in print than fly to the moon without a spaceship. Understandable. Let me just tell you this one thing that is vaguely related. It's definitely related to extreme humanism. Um, I fell down, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago and hit my head pretty hard. And so they did a brain CAT scan. So we'll talk about CAT scans. Um, I get, I go in to get my CAT scan and there's a tech and the tech or two techs administer the CAT scan. Uh, 30 minutes later, if it was an emergency, and 18 hours later, the radiologist, the big dude, reads the CAT scan, okay? So they did this, and, and the radiologist is looking at wavy charts and graphs and data pouring in front of him on his, on his big screen, uh, and they did this experiment. I'm going to say when I, they did not do this with me. When I come in, the metaphorical Tom, they say, would you mind if we took your picture? And so they take my picture. And I just assume it's for the files. So 
we have two states of nature in the research. Radiologists who have no picture, and so Tom is ones and zeros and wavy lines, and radiologists who in the upper right-hand corner of their screen have a photo of Tom. Uh, and the numbers are staggering. The num amount of time they spend on doing the diagnosis doubles if my photo is up there. Their term is anomalies. What they're looking for in the picture is some weird thing that's just a little bit out of kilter that, that might give you a clue about what's going on. They find many, many more times anomaly, anomalies if the picture is there. And it's just a, you know, and, and this, you know, I really hope everybody listens to that. And, and, you know, we have all intelligent people listening to us so they can make the transfer to their working life. Just humanize it one itty bitty bitty teeny weeny way. And suddenly you've got an entire different planet. I mean, I just love that example. And I love it because you can tell it in two minutes and because it's a clobber you over the head example. Yeah. I get human. And damn it, all of this is we will, one hopes, get past the pandemic. Uh, but we are not getting past artificial intelligence anytime soon. And it's going to accelerate, accel accelerate on a path that looks like that, not like that. And what I argue throughout the book is the best defense, and I don't use the word, I make clear I'm not, best offense, is to humanize the products and the services that you deliver and use every tool known to humankind to deliver your podcast or whatever else it is. But the focus is on the human. And, 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 and you know, and this is not just because of my age. I don't know what the hell happens in 40 years. Um, but what I know is that in order to get to 20 years from now, you got to live through the next 20 years, starting this minute with our conversation. And so it's lovely to talk about the, the long term, but you got to get through the next six months. You got to get through the next six years. And for the next six or 10 or 15 years, AI is not going to take over the planet. I mean, it's self-driving. I mean, self-driving, I've talked to a lot of people. It's going to take roughly forever. The technology is there. But 83,726 different municipalities have to pass regulations for self-driving. And that ain't happening before dawn tomorrow. Yeah. And can Tesla and these other companies practice leadership styles that embrace extreme humanism so they can create better design, better products, better companies? That's and better, and the better, opportunity. Better companies. Uh, I, I don't want to reveal my political leanings. And I don't believe that the union is ever is the answer to everything by a long shot. I hope the Amazon people in the warehouses get their union. I hope they get better working conditions one way yeah, or another I hope they get from what's been reported. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, the union is not the point, but the point is something radical has to happen. We don't need improvement. We need Uncle Jeffy to wake up in the morning and say, well, I've already got my trillion dollars. Maybe I could share. Uh, a couple pennies with Mark and Tom. Yeah. Well, Tom, I, I, I hate to cut you off because I, I love everything that you're sharing here. And I, I would love to have a 90 minute discussion or the, the three hour long Joe Rogan podcast, but I'm told we don't have that much time. So um, Tom, it, it's been a real pleasure to be able to interview you again. Um, the most recent book again is Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism, 
Um, Tom's website is tompeters.com, and you, you can find him on, on Twitter. He's a lively follower. Well, I'm going to add two seconds to this thing. Yeah. Uh, when the pandemic came along, my wife was doing a lot of community stuff and so on, and I thought, here you are, Peter, sitting on your ass. And so I didn't pretend to have expertise, but we started going around and saying to people with podcasts, Tom would like to talk about leadership in the time of COVID-19. And along the way, and this is a good ending point, maybe for both of us, but certainly for me, uh, came the COVID-19 Leadership 7. And the Leadership 7 are be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be positive, be present, walk in the other person's shoes. Uh, I have said and will continue to say to leaders, the way that you have behaved and are behaving now during this once a century, we hope, pandemic will define your professional career. It's as simple as that. This will be the moment. How did he behave? You know, he, I mean, this is why here, here, here's my definition of good behavior on the part of a boss. Uh, the boss is running a 20 person group and they have maybe even a couple zoom meetings a day. Uh, and you know, there is, we'll call it Jane or Harry. It doesn't really matter is one of the people on my team. And, you know, we've now probably had 40 meetings and Jane or Harry has always showed up on time and always been on their seat in their seat on time. So I, on a private call or whatever, I, I call Harry in. I said, Harry, I'm going to give you some feedback. And I said, it's going to be negative feedback. And I said, here's my negative feedback. Would you please miss some meetings? I happen to know that you've got two kids at home. I happen to know that you have an eight, which a boss ought to always know an 80 year old mother who is in an assisted living activity. And I know that upstairs, your wife is teaching a third grade class. And I said, take care of yourself, take care of your mom, take care of your family. And it's really okay not to be awesomely productive. Be late, miss the meeting, blow us off. You know, obviously not a hundred percent of the time, but put first things first and first things are not an eighth of a percent productivity hit for our group. Yeah. Well, thank you for that reminder and, and, and for your advocacy there. So, um, Tom, really a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Um, really, really enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you for the time today. Well, I thank you at least as much or more. Been doing this, as I say several times in the book, for 43 years. The message is straightforward. Not enough people are listening. And so you are giving me the opportunity to talk about the stuff that is most important in my life. So I don't know whether you got a good deal or not with this half hour. I did. <laughs> I did. I got, talk, I got to talk to some more people. Yeah. You know, it, it ain't rocket science. I said to somebody, I have all these degrees, but if you want to understand everything in my books, you must show me a signed certificate of graduation from the fourth grade. <laughs> you know, that's the extent of it. Be decent, take care of people, uh, play around. One thing, one thing, I know you can get a hold of Michael Schrag at MIT, but there's a term of his that I should have used today. Uh, he says innovation 
The key to innovation, and this is so much on the failure thing, is listen to this term, serious play. Trying stuff is playful. Serious play, it doesn't mean, you know, being sloppy. But the, the translation of the word play into the notion of innovation in a business enterprise or any other enterprise is a very cool thing that can't be resolved by me saying it in 30 seconds. Grab Michael if you can. He's an MIT professor and he's a good guy. Right. Well, good. Great idea. Thank you for that. And again, thank you for everything that that, that you're doing and continue to talk, to do. Last thing I'll say is, you know, in the book, you said something like, you know, it's your last hurrah. I hope not. I'm sure book 20 will be here. At some uh, point. Well, who knows? I really, relative to an earlier comment, I realized while writing that this book is my memoir. It's about the ideas that I've spent 43 years of my life on. And I have a neighbor who's a world famous social psychology and she's psychologist and she's doing a memoir and she called it an ideas memoir. And it is a memoir. I mean, this is what I've been doing, you know, 2,500 speeches. 7,500 flight legs, 20 effing books, and so on. This is what I do. And, you know, the only reason I'll write number 20 is my frustration once again boiling over that this is stuff that doesn't require more than a fourth grade diploma, and yet we don't do it. And let us both pray, whether we are atheists or whether we're six morning masses a week people, let us pray that some of the decent things in terms of behavior that have come during this pandemic will stick and that we will not unwittingly just go back to business as usual. I just, I mean, literally, you know, down on both knees and just hoping that this will turn a little bit of a corner. And, and again, the other thing, because we have practical people watching this, all the data is clear. Do the right stuff with people and you make more money. This is not this is not sweetness and light and ignore the realities of business. It works. It's not going to get you the win in the next 60 days. But when we extend the time frame to a year or a couple of years, the best behavior toward our people is just plain carrying bags of $100 bills to the bank. <laughs> Well, well said, Tom. So again, thank you. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Well, as I said to you, the feeling is mutual. You've given me a bigger opportunity than I've given you. So thank you. Well, again, I want to thank the one, the only, the legendary Tom Peters for being a guest and being so generous with his time here. If you want to enter to win a copy of Tom's latest book, Excellence Now, Extreme Humanism. You can go to markcraven.com slash mistake58. If you like the episode, the best thing you can do to help me out and help out the show is to share this episode with a friend or a colleague. If you want to share it on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook, it would be much appreciated. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes and how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. 
If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.